On this episode, I spoke with Jonathan Snow about influencer marketing, social, and running his agency after being an orthodontist. There were a lot of golden nuggets of wisdom, especially around influencer marketing in this episode where he dives into how to use TikTok shop, how to use Instagram and beyond. So let's dive right into the episode. Um, I, I do want to start with kind of level setting, getting to know you a little bit, give some context before we dive into the the deeper details of influencer marketing, things like that. So I'd love for you to walk us through, first and foremost, your transition from being an orthodontist to getting involved in digital marketing. It's not usually the story that we hear on the pod. So would love to dive into that story and kind of level set before we dive into anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I hope you have 30 minutes for the for the story here. But um, so I was a, I was actually a dentist in the Air Force um, and I was stationed in the middle of nowhere in Louisiana. And uh, days would start early. They would end early. I was at home at 3 p.m. and had all this free time on my hands. And that's when I partnered up with my brother who was building large organic social media pages on Instagram and Twitter um, and built an affiliate marketing platform that got large organic social pages like influencers, celebrities, professional athletes, publishers on the platform. And then we ran affiliate offers through our platform and onto those pages. So it was essentially an organic social media platform. Um, it's kind of doing this on the side after work every day as a dentist and then saw some quick traction. And then from there, we transitioned into actually becoming an e-commerce holding company. Um, we had a massive affiliate network now through the influencers that was really easy to monetize and get reach with the certain niches we were looking for, for a variety of different e-commerce brands. So we bootstrapped many brands, um, scaled them to seven or eight figures in revenue within the first year. Obviously from there, we started mastering paid media, email marketing, design and devs. Uh, so, so yeah, that was kind of how the agency was born was from that e-commerce holding company. Then during those years, I actually worked three more years as a general dentist. And then actually went did another three year specialty program back in New York City uh, is where I became an orthodontist. And uh, it's actually pretty ironic how I exited um, the field of orthodontics was that right when I graduated, I was actually under contract to buy an office in the Bronx in New York City and COVID hit that week. So obviously I pulled out of the deal. Elective treatment, you know, putting on braces for people is unfortunately elective treatment and you couldn't even have an office open or accept new patients for many months in New York and New Jersey. So from there, stepped away, worked full-time on the agency. And by the time things opened back up and then when we were kind of all clear from COVID, I mean, the agency was already double or even triple in size by then. So haven't treated a patient since COVID. So from that initial period, what were the things that you were doing back then that are maybe different from what you focus on now? Yeah, in terms of in terms of marketing in general. Right, correct. Yeah. Yep. So when we first got started, you know, the organic social media platform, Instagram algorithm was entirely different. So you could literally drive predictable revenue through influencers' actual organic posts. This is when Instagram kind of had reach as a predictable metric. Then they realized people weren't going through their ad platform, you know, the Facebook ad platform, because they could go directly to the audiences themselves through through influencer. Um, and so we really used influencer and organic as, as a performance channel. And then that changed drastically in around 2016, when the algorithm changed, that's where we really got deep into paid media. Um, and obviously for the better, it was much easier to scale paid media than negotiating rates with influencers all day. Um, so I would say that's really the main 
difference. And what's interesting is that everything is always cyclical. We're seeing a big return to affiliate influencers because of the rise of TikTok shops now. So we're seeing influencer posts and even brand organic posts going viral all the time. And you hear of brands generating, you know, thousands of thousands of dollars a day on TikTok shop organic revenue uh, specifically. And it's kind of like the return of affiliate marketing on social platforms. Let, let's dive into the TikTok shop just for, just for a second, as I know that that's becoming bigger and bigger. If you were just consulting somebody, a brand that was kind of interested in getting their feet wet there and actually seeing some success, what are the things you'd tell them as they're getting started? Like the TikTok shop 101 for brands, the, the few finer points that they should know, things to avoid. Yeah, so the main thing is, Oh, you have to be US based. So there's so many brands that are either incorporated in Canada or any other country outside of the US. Unfortunately, it's only available in the US. So that's the first box you have to check. Um, the next box is, is really you have to have a compliant product. So take a look at TikTok's prohibited products policy. It's pretty strict and doesn't really make sense in some cases. For example, you're allowed to sell toothpaste and, and teeth whitening strips, but you cannot sell a toothbrush. Doesn't really make sense. But I'd say before starting investing in the platform, make sure that you're even eligible to sell products there. So those are the first two things um, that might seem like common sense, but I've seen a lot of brands get hung up there. Uh, in terms of how this has really changed the game now is that I would start on, if I was a brand, I would focus all of my organic effort on TikTok first. So in order to really scale a TikTok shop, if you don't have organic creatives with the performance elements and you don't understand like the best practices on TikTok organic creative, you're really going to struggle. And But once you can get organic posts working and they start generating revenue, that's when the TikTok paid flywheel can really start. So once you have a post that's doing well, you amplify it through a spark code and now you have TikTok ads. You could, you could really see success with much less risk on, on TikTok ads because you already know that it's working on organic. So um, I would say that's, that's kind of where I would start. You really need to understand what brands are doing. So I would take a look at TikTok shops in general, uh, the, the, the biggest brands in your category and see what their organic pages are looking like and take a look at what's going viral, you know, which, one, which posts have the most engagement and the most views uh, and you'll, you'll kind of understand where to get started. When you're thinking TikTok specifically, measuring the value between UGC or just kind of trying to make things happen yourself and, and not going through UGC up front, how do you think about where the most value lives in terms of strategy there? Like, what would you recommend that companies, what's the balance they should focus on the split between UGC or brand content? And That's a great question. Uh, I would I'd actually say the most important thing is volume. It actually is not. I wouldn't focus on like, I need all UGC or I need all image or I need all, you know, short form video. I would just say the most important thing is truly volume. Five to 10 posts a day seems to be that magic area where you're getting predictable virality. Um, I've seen UGC work really well, short form, and don't forget you have to tag the product. You'll, you have a high, much higher chance of going viral when you tag a product that's tied to the TikTok shop. I see brands that have a TikTok shop set up, their influencers not tagging the product, and the brand is not even tagging the product on their organic pages. So that's, that's the first thing you need to always focus on is tagging that product. Um, but yeah, short form influencer content, What's really working well now are image carousels. So like kind of like listicle style. So five ways to improve gut health. And then each of those slides would be like you know, different things. And the last slide is usually your product. 
So you're creating engaging content that's really catered to like problem solution rather than here's my product, go buy it, right? It's like resonating with people. If they deal with bloating, top five foods you should, you should consume to avoid bloating, right? So those are the formats that are really working well. If I were a company and I decided that UGC was where I felt like I could get the most volume, but I was having, I was kind of struggling just getting things started. I feel like this is probably a common question that, that you get or that the companies have. Where do you start with gathering UGC? Like, how do you kickstart that reliably so that you can consistently get that content coming? Yep. So really, there's there's a bunch of different tools at your disposal. So there's one is the TikTok affiliate platform. So that's where all of the TikTok influencers with, you know, you, they need more than 5,000 followers to be eligible for commission. But essentially, you can engage in collaborations with all of these TikTok registered influencers already and really just set it on a commission-based structure. So you actually don't even need to pay a fixed fee. It's purely performance-based. If you want to give, obviously, you have to understand your unit economics. But if you want to give 20% commission on your products, that gives influencers high upside. That guarantees you a, fi a 5x return on, on your cost to acquire the customer. So that's kind of a win-win. But then we like using other platforms outside of TikTok as well, or just to hit a different level of scale. We like working with Incense, I-N-S-E-N-S-E. -E. Uh, it's essentially an affiliate or an influencer marketing platform where you can actually niche down and find TikTok shop affiliate influencers there. And you put together your brief over there. We like actually including a fixed fee in addition to upside with commission so that you get higher volume of applicants or influencers that are interested in working with. And really from there, it's, it's casting a wide net initially. And when you see those influencers that start working well, then you go back to them and get them on essentially a retainer or a multi-post package and you just have them to keep pumping out content for you. And, uh, and then that's how you scale it. Well, while we're still talking TikTok, this is slightly tangential, but want to get your, your take on this. How do you think about mitigating risk that the platform could go away? Given that you're spending a lot of time here, that you're investing in the TikTok shop and in your clients as well. How do you think about what could happen if it went away and what your plan B would be? Yeah, I would say my main answer to that would be, that was questions I was getting three years ago when TikTok shop first, or TikTok first burst onto the scene. Like, oh, should we be here? It could get banned next year. And like, here we are three years later, still highly unlikely it'll actually get banned. And if it does, maybe it'll take years, right? To actually have that get passed. Um, so I would say like, you need, you really need to invest your time and a saving grace should be that if let's say TikTok, we woke up tomorrow and it was banned, all the TikTok creatives that you've invested in, those work really well on meta. So and it works well on YouTube shorts, works well on Instagram reels, Facebook reels. Some of the best Facebook ads that I see were actually TikTok creatives that we got from TikTok influencers. So that should give you a lot of comfort that if it did go away, that your investment is still a highly highly transferable to other platforms. Short form video isn't going anywhere. As I want to zoom out just a little bit from just TikTok and overall influencer marketing. When you're looking back even just one year ago, what were you doing in 2023 that you feel like is different now? Like how, what difference does a year make in terms of your strategy for influencer marketing? Yeah, it's, it's really, I think the main answer once again is TikTok. Uh, a year ago, we did not put any value into affiliate influencers because we would just value the UGC that we would take and then we would repurpose that in the ad account and scale it that way. 
just because, you know, like I said before, influencers, they post, they have 100,000 followers. Maybe they have, you know, I don't know, a few thousand views. Maybe sometimes they get 100,000 views. It's really hard to forecast uh, on, in, on Instagram and, and Facebook. So I would say like the, the return to being able to forecast that through TikTok shops and like virality and the value of an organic post now coming back to the fold, that's really the main difference. A year ago, zero affiliate component didn't care about the organic post that much. Now it's total 180. I'm sure as, as an agency, you'll have clients come to you that are either, you know, they want to do this stuff, but they've never done it before, or they've already tried their hand at it, at it and probably not done so well. And so they come to you. For, for those people that have tried it before, what are the big mistakes, the pitfalls for influencer marketing specifically that you see companies making that they really shouldn't be? What, what would that laundry list be? Yeah, I would, anytime. And, and that's a great question because this happens quite frequently. You know, we, we hear all the time, influencer and UGC marketing does not work for us, right? Well, their main issue is that their creative brief was entirely off. It was not, I, you could take a look at the creative brief and you'd understand that the talking points they're trying to drill down on would not convert in a performance sense. So it really comes down to market research, understanding the consumer pain points that the products are solving, ensuring that you're having the influencers talk about not the product, but the problem that the product solves. I always say people are very selfish, right? So like if you're scrolling through the Instagram feed and you see an ad for a gut health brand, you probably don't care about that brand. You never heard of them. You're just going to scroll right past it. But let's say you're one of the 50% of the people in the U.S. that have bloating or fatigue and brain fog related to gut health issues. But you, and then you, you scrolled and you saw an ad about bloating or brain fog and fatigue. And you're like, oh, I actually resonate with that. I'm going to stop and see what this is all about. By the time you got their attention, now they're in front of your ad. They understand that your brand solves that pain point. And now they're a likely a click through and a conversion. Um, so I would say that it really starts there. It's, it's not that influencer marketing doesn't work is that it has to be done properly and it all comes down to research, pain points, creative brief. Yeah. And you, with the creative brief, can you walk through maybe an example of one that you've done recently or that you've seen where you're just like, yep, that nailed it. That's going to work. Like what are the, what are the elements that you just make you very clear that something's going to work creatively? Yeah, it, it really comes down to, I would say just understanding the pain points. So. It goes to post-purchase surveys is really where we like to do a lot of our analysis on why did people buy the product and having all the different use cases for, for why the product was being purchased. So you understand, all right, 50% of our people are buying because of this issue, 25% are buying because of this, this other feature and, and so on and so forth. Knowing that having that in intelligence, that zero party data, it's giving you a high chance of being able to hit home on that and find other people that resonate with that pain point. Um, so in terms of a particular recent one, um, I mean, there's, there's, there's so many, uh, I'm trying to think of an example where I don't, I can't give away the client, but, um, we can, we can stick to the gut health one. Um, it really does come down to the bloating brain fog and fatigue and, and skin issues. So we had influencers film different hooks based on different pain points. So that we knew that if we do a lot of hook testing and, and the core part of the video kind of was the same, but we had a, a ton of different hooks to test alongside it, that we would have a higher likelihood of success. So that we 
were hitting home on on every one of those pain points and and it was going to be predictable how how do you feel about production value versus just like going pure authentic in the creative i think that's a trend we're seeing now where you don't need to, your companies aren't feeling the need to make everything look so pristine anymore but having it look just more raw and authentic seems to be working okay is that is that your experience as well or do you think that there's still areas where you probably want higher production value yeah that's we've been we've been aligned with what you just said for years now um i would say when it comes down to like performance marketing and even organic social for the most part really that raw relatable content that looks native to the platform and not forced and rehearsed and overly produced that's what that's what sticks best uh we also identified that cpms are usually much lower when it's clearly not a commercial type ad um high production value still has a ton of weight we have a studio ourselves we do product photography videography really that high level production but that's more so for the website obviously you want high high quality product photography and videography, like a founder story or almost like, you know, the story of the brand, how the brand was established. All that content is great and has use, but generally not in terms of performance marketing. So I, I know that you've started e-com stores as well. You've generated a lot in revenue. Um, when you're look, when you're zooming out beyond just influencer marketing and looking at all of the tactics you've used and the strategies you've used to grow, what are some of the key strategies stood out that really just made it super obvious and easier to grow revenue for your e-com stores? Yeah, the number one lever for us that has unlocked scale for many different brands is what we call performance PR marketing. So think of a publisher, an advertorial published on a publisher's website rather than the brand's website. Um, so let's go back to the gut health uh, angle, right? So we would publish an advertorial on the dailypost.co. We actually own that website. We built it specifically for the purpose of advertorial publications. And uh, we publish a story. I was dealing with bloating, brain fog, and fatigue for six years until I discovered this one product. So it's almost taking you through a journey of what a customer, the exact use case for why a customer would purchase that product. We would then actually run whitelisted ads from the Daily Post Facebook and Instagram page going right to that advertorial, which would then click through to the brand's website for the ultimate purchase. So that's the tactic that really has worked best for our brands that are in the CPG space or their functional products, right? They're usually solving a problem. Um, so that's been, we have like our, one of our biggest clients that has scaled the most, I would say over 50% of their ad spend is leveraging performance PR rather than ads coming from the brand page. So. That's been the number one tactic. I'm pretty surprised. I still don't see it that widespread today. I, I know a bunch of big names in the space, big brands are doing it. There's just not a ton of press behind it. It's still kind of a best kept secret, I would say. But uh, I have some videos on that that people could look up if they want to learn more about performance PR marketing. Awesome. Well, la last question here before we let you go. All around your your tooling. So you, you run this agency, your influencer marketing, social, other things as well. What are the couple of marketing tools that if they went away, you'd be like super sad and it would actually be super inconvenient for you if those tools disappeared? Yeah, I would say if Shopify went away, then I would be extremely sad. Um, but uh, that's an obvious one. I would say, honestly, our analytics platform that we built uh, this past year, it's something I'm really proud of. Um, we use Source Medium for all of our data pipelines, but then we visualize it in Looker Studio. 
I'd say if, if Looker Studio or Source Medium went away and kind of threw a wrench into all the analytics that, that we were building out, that would be extremely disappointing. I think it's a differentiator for us and for our clients that are, that are using the dashboard, able to slice and dice the data in any which way possible. Um, so I would say Source Medium and, and, and Looker Studio, uh, and then also third-party uh, CAPI solutions for Facebook ads have been a huge help for us, help restore the data feedback loop that kind of broke after iOS 14. So the two main ones I'll shout out there, Blot Out and Popsicle. Those are the two solutions we've been using for clients to really make sure that all the server data was being sent back to Meta, TikTok, and the data was actually usable since it was our first party data. And a lot of brands out there don't understand that if you're just using the native Facebook Shopify conversion API, that a lot of that data you're sending back is not actually able to be used for optimizing your ads. So that's a nice call out.